0: Looking for the perfect gift for your little ones for Easter? Jesus Calling for Kids has two new editions just for kids, one in pink and one in blue. You can find them in the Religion and Inspiration section of Barnes & Noble today.
1: I love the book of Exodus when it says God could have taken the children of Israel the short route, but He chose to take them the long road because He knew the first time they faced a battle they would turn and flee. And I feel like that's a lot more of it. It's the long-term spiritual exercise that strengthens you for this battle called life. Welcome to the Jesus Calling
0: Podcast. This week we talk with two women who have known and seen what happens when we find the courage to make a bold shift in our lives, novelist Patty Callahan Henry and activist and author Rebecca Bender. Rebecca Bender is the CEO and founder of the Rebecca Bender Initiative and is a survivor, leader, and author of In Pursuit of Love. Rebecca thought she was going to have the life she had always dreamed of when she moved to Las Vegas with her boyfriend, but the dream became a nightmare when her boyfriend became her pimp at the age of 19. Rebecca recounts how she was forced into sex trafficking for nearly six years and how, during that time, she could feel God pursuing her and slowly building the courage
1: in her that would eventually allow her to escape. I'm Rebecca Bender. I'm a survivor of human trafficking, but I'm more than just my story. I'm a wife and a mother. I'm the CEO and founder of a nonprofit, and I'm an author of several books, but my newest I'm really excited about, which is In Pursuit of Love. I grew up in a small rural town in Oregon, about 3,000 people. Back then, a little tiny lumber town called Cave Junction, Oregon. But I had a great childhood. I was an only child. I Grew up skipping rocks, um, riding horses and bikes, and I just—I had a great childhood. I grew up, you know, with a lot of animals on small farms—cows and chickens—and one side of my family was very strong Christian family—church pastors and Bible study teachers and ministers. I would go to church with them on Sundays or vacation Bible school. But my life at home with my parents and then my, my mom and then my stepdad was just so very different than any form of going to church or faith at all. Um, different forms of uh, violence in the home, whether dad was yelling and throwing things or my mom had a new boyfriend that was really a jerk and didn't treat her very well. It really desensitized me probably more than I even realized until more recently in my adult life. It left me as a only child feeling very unseen, unimportant, and unwanted, which kind of stuck with me as I grew into my teenage years. I wanted to get out of my little town. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to explore what was out there. Happy to join a, the new group at school that you know, invited me to that first party. Happy to do it because I just wanted to love and be loved. I wanted to be a part of something. I wanted to have fun. I was a varsity athlete. I was an honor roll student. I was busy. I was on prom court, harvest ball queen. Um, But again, I I was kind of a party girl. So I was great all through school and on the bus to and from away games. And then that Saturday came around. I found out where the nearest party was and went and hung out with friends and just kind of always on the go. That had become my norm. So when I would occasionally attend church with my grandma, I felt very judged. I felt very like, oh, this is the family that, you know, the prayer requests have been about. And I know that was never anyone's intention, but it didn't feel always welcoming. I felt like an outsider, um, which pushed me, I think, even further away from, from wanting to be a part of a community of faith. I got pregnant at 17 and had a daughter at 18 and moved into college town. It was about two hours north of my family. And right away, I could tell that this was going to be not probably the adventure that I had hoped. I didn't have the support of all my, my grandparents and my, my own parents and my aunts and cousins. I didn't have any support. And suddenly I was the girl on campus with the kid. Those vulnerabilities I had as a young girl feeling really alone and unimportant started to resurface. And it was at that time when I was feeling, questioning if I'd made the right decision to move there, um, really starting to get in with the wrong crowd, um, is when I met a young man who had a lot of ambition and seemed to have a lot of answers to my problems. You know, I'm, I'm a single mom living, you know, in poverty, trying to put myself possibly through school. And he had all these answers. And he was funny and he was charming. My dream started to shift and morph into his. Everything became about we and us and our plans and our future instead of me having dreams that he wanted to support like maybe a healthy relationship would do everything became his plans but somehow he was able to convince me that they were that they would become our plans you know Um, any attempt to fast track a relationship is a huge red flag obviously in hindsight as a healthy adult there were a huge amount of red flags that I just didn't know what to look for you know things like Frequently making trips out of town, having a no job that anyone can actually visit, but enough things that clearly they have a quote unquote good job, right? Really nice cars, really nice homes, being able to travel so much. How are you doing that if you don't have a job that anyone can visit? Um, multiple phones engaging in culture that really degrades women whether that's music choice or concert attendance anytime you are in a new relationship your circle should be doubling right you're now getting introduced to his friends and him to yours and and vice versa Um, instead of your circle shrinking that that seclusion and isolation whether moving you away or encouraging you to move to a different town all of those became red flags that that no one really noticed I thought I'd met the one. I thought I was going to get married, have a white picket fence. You know, we talked about having kids someday and I just was completely in love. I was a 19-year-old girl, head over heels in love with this man that that seemed to have all the answers to every problem that I had. And When we started packing up my apartment to move in, he told me that his job was relocating him to Las Vegas. And I had had some other red flags. We had gone on vacation there once, and I think I was so in love that I wasn't seeing clearly. (laughs) And I'm I'm sure I'm not the only woman in this world who's been so head over heels at 19 that you um, you just kind of look aside at the things that may have caused red flags because you so hope and want this relationship to work. You know, you can't imagine going back to hopelessness. And so you choose to look the other way because you really want the dream that's kind of being dangled in front of you. So I noticed some other red flags when we had been on vacation in Vegas. But I, again, I just didn't, I just chose to really not, I chose to believe him. I chose to believe the lies uh, because I really wanted this relationship to work. I was in complete mental chains traffickers are very good at at brainwashing. There's actually a study out from Northern Colorado University that shows that domestic human trafficking, so trafficking here in the United States, it fits all 15 indicators of cult behavior, which was really eye-opening for me when I learned that because you could see how this, this high control leader really created this us versus them mentality, controlling where you eat and when you sleep and who you're in relationship with, who can be your friends, uh, complete isolation to outside information. And then the bonds that you form with him, uh, whether it's Stockholm Syndrome, capture bonding, trauma bonding, these are actual DSM-5 indicators from psychologists. These aren't terms that just trafficking victims make up. Like, this actually happens to people when they're in very controlled, isolated, traumatic relationships. And before I knew it, I felt just completely brainwashed and desensitized to this very hyper-commercial sex industry. But I still had moments of, yeah, this still isn't what I was sold. This isn't what I actually want. and This isn't what I want for my daughter. And I would kick back and I would push back and I would say, no, this isn't what I was promised and this isn't what you told me. And the problem is the more I would push back, the more hurt I would get physically And I can remember him actually saying to me once, he actually said to the whole room, all the other women, he pulled me out in the middle and he said, this one has a spirit that won't be broken as if it was a bad thing. And and for a long time, I thought it was. And now I'm so grateful that God gave me a spirit that pushed back and said, no, something's not right here. And part of my brain is starting to fall for it. But part of me is trying to hold on and grasp for a little bit of hope that this isn't actually normal. During my nearly six years that I was in domestic human trafficking, I was traded and sold between three different traffickers. There were moments in my life where I started to feel like I was going crazy, I started feeling like my mind was slipping away, and I I would do things to try to keep myself present. But really, God began pursuing me. I was so filled with with knowing that I could hear the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Creator of the universe who chose to talk to me. and. That really kept me through some of my darkest times when I started to get very hopeless, um, suicidal, depression. That's when I started to feel my mind slipping and I would just start praying. Like I, I call out, you know, I pray for the spirit of peace in the name of Jesus. I would pray this over myself while being trafficked. I think someone gave me a Jesus Calling devotional during my time kind of, you know, just trying to find myself. And it was so great to have something that was very quick but very deep you know jesus calling goes deep in a way that's um really speaks to your heart and i loved the thought of jesus talking to me the way that i had heard him through so much of my trauma finally in 2006 the feds raided one of the homes of my traffickers and Thankfully, in December of 2007, two of the other victims had been sentenced to a year in prison for felony tax evasion. And that gave me an opportunity knowing that my trafficker also was about to take a plea deal on a tax evasion charge. Um, I knew that he wouldn't be able to chase me as he had done in the past when I had ran in the past. And so um, I packed up everything I could in our suitcases and I grabbed my daughter and I, I fled. And I think that was really hard escaping was scary it's hard but what's equally as hard is now what here i am back in my tiny small lumber town you know you're technically choosing homelessness you're sleeping on people's couches you're getting on food stamps you know i didn't have a fork or a pillow to my name i had nothing Living in a very small town with a criminal record, a huge gap in job history, a ridiculous amount of stigmas with the term prostitution related. If if someone were to run a background check and to try to volunteer at my kid's school or to get a job, it was this constant fear that everyone was going to find out what kind of girl I used to be. This is my favorite part about God is just how he breaks off chains, he breaks off shame, he, he completely can redo our lives we can become new creations but it takes a lot of work and i had this come to jesus moment one night with the lord where i just cried out to god and i said i don't want this either you know i don't I, I feel hopeless i feel just as hopeless like i don't i don't want this life either what is this all you saved me for was to live in government subsidized housing and be on poverty and riding the public bus and like this is really hard too and i don't want this either and I remember God saying very clearly, if you give me the same amount of time that you gave the enemy, I will never be outdone. And it's like I had this revelation shift in my heart of, I can't expect God to undo in 30 days what took six years to really take hold. And and so I said, okay, I'll give you six years. <laughs> but if it's not better, I'm out. And I just had this this you know moment of being real with God. You have to be real with God. He knows what you're thinking. And, um, he knows even more than you do what's happening in your brain and and your mind and your heart. So just crying out to him helps really shift and give you some revelation and helps you take your eyes above your circumstance to see what he has in store. It was in that moment of declaring, okay, I'm in, I'm all in. And that I started accepting, I think more of the support from my community, from my family, from my church. And, um, God just did a radical, radical shift in my own heart where I started loving the small town I lived in. And I started feeling and seeing a part of the community that I, I really had only seen through the lens of my vulnerable young self, where now I got to see um, this incredible community of people who wanted to come around me and support me and break the shame. I'm now happily married. My husband and I have been married. We celebrated ten years earlier this this year, and we have four beautiful daughters. My oldest daughter, who is with me during all of this, is now almost twenty years old, and she's a junior in college. And God is just doing great things in her life. Um, we're so blessed. We we. Live on a tiny little farm with chickens and eggs and a little garden. And we, um, I just love being able to travel and share the word of the Lord. I started the Rebecca Bender Initiative back in 2014. I'd started sharing my story back in uh, 2008. And the Lord just kept kind of eating at my heart that I needed to um, do something. So, I took my story and created a law enforcement training and a medical professional training to try to help community professionals. And year to date, we have trained over 100,000 FBI agents, undercover cops, and just local law enforcement across the country, prosecutors, judges. Um, My nonprofit's been able to help traffic victims in several cases. I've taken the stand as a human trafficking expert, testified in trials across the country, helped to prosecute traffickers. And what I love about the work that God allows me to do today is not only do we get to bring justice for the victim and we ensure that her and anyone who this person who had potentially had interaction with be safe now, but I love that it's also creating constant change in the community. You know, I was a girl who's pursuing love in all the wrong places. And eventually that led to a trafficker actually pursuing me because of my vulnerabilities. But the whole time God pursued us. And at the end, it's really about, will you let it all go to pursue him? Those who've been forgiven much loveth much. And I just kept owning that. If God took Rahab and put her in the lineage of Jesus and said to his disciples that this this one loves more than you, how much more for a girl like me? Jesus loves girls like me. We're all over the Bible. Don't put the shame on who should own the shame, which is the perpetrators. Don't take ownership of that on yourself. Hand it right back to who deserves it, and it's not you. You can find Rebecca's book, In Pursuit of Love, and other resources at
0: her website at RebeccaBender.org. If you or someone you care about is involved with trafficking, there is help. Call the National U.S. Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-373-7888 to get help today. We'll be right back with our next guest, Patty Callahan, after this message about a free new resource from Jesus Calling, The Jesus Calling Magazine.
1: Jesus Calling for Graduates is perfect for both high school and college graduates as they embark on the next chapter. Look for a special custom edition of Jesus Calling for Graduates, available exclusively at faithgateway.com.
0: Now there's a new way to enjoy stories from Jesus Calling readers who have found encouragement and restoration in their spiritual journeys with the Jesus Calling magazine. Every issue is filled with original inspirational stories of faith along with devotions, recipes, home decor ideas, tips for parents, gift guides for every season, and more. New issues are released quarterly and are available in print for U.S. residents and available online for all readers worldwide. And best of all, no matter how you receive it, The Jesus Calling Magazine is absolutely free. To order your first issue of The Jesus Calling Magazine, or to read a past issue, visit jesuscalling.com magazine today. That's jesuscalling.com magazine. For decades, the world has been captivated by the writings of 20th-century British writer and theologian C.S. Lewis, including novelist Patti Callahan Henry, As Patty grew curious about one of her favorite writers, she found herself wanting to learn more about his mysterious wife, Joy Davidman. After years of research, Patty wanted to tell Joy's story and wrote a fictionalized account of her life called Becoming Mrs. Lewis, the improbable love story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis. Patty walks us through her journey toward writing and then introduces us to the life of the remarkable Joy Davidman and her moving love story with C.S.
2: Lewis. I am Patty Callahan Henry, and I also write under Patty Callahan. I'm a novelist. Um, I'm a nurse turned novelist, a real believer in the power of stories, And I live in Birmingham, Alabama most of the time, but spend the, another majority of the time in um, Bluffton, South Carolina. So I grew up... Um, Till I was twelve years old in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, my dad was a Presbyterian pastor. Being in the middle of a church like that and, and, and watching, you know, I saw the constant human drama. The ups, the downs, the marriages, the deaths, the dissolutions, the the infighting, the kind of behind the scenes. And I don't know, but do guess it helped shape me as a writer because I was constantly exposed to the human dilemma, to what faith and being a human being meant in our daily lives and not just in my family. But my parents were constantly dealing with the crises of other families too. And I was observing it, I was a watcher. When I was a kid, faith was the facts you know, the 10 points or the things that you listed that you must believe in, I was always questioning and I was very strong-willed or so I was told. So I think that my faith isn't a settled and for sure set of beliefs like it was when I was young. Now my faith is more of a mystery. I think if I had stayed there with the settled and for sure, um, it would have prevented growth. I think we have to kind of have faith in this God that's indwelling and accessible. But the grown-up part of that faith for me is that that's okay. That is okay for me. I don't have to feel guilty or bad or wrong because it evolves and changes. And I love this word transforms. So it transforms. And it transforms me and it transforms as long as it's always about the indwelling God, I feel I feel fairly safe in my faith. But I did really want to be a nurse, and I went to Auburn University. I was a pediatric nurse. I received my master's degree in child health. I was a clinical nurse specialist in pediatrics. I loved it. Um, but about but I was also always scribbling, still always taking notes, um, totally involved in the power of story, a fascination with mythology, and. When my kids were very young, I had three kids in five years, and they were five, three, and new, and I decided that I was going to try and write only one book, that I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it, and I also wanted to dive into the art that had sustained me all those years. It was pure fright. I was, I had to tell myself no one would ever read it and there are parts of it nobody has ever read. But I had to, yeah, I mean, I went back to school. I took some classes. I entered contests. I was rejected and knocked down. And it was, it was definitely an act of perseverance and, and faith, a different kind of faith, a better faith. I think I was always a writer. I wrote from the time I could hold a crayon. I had, you know, I have little notebooks and and stories tucked away in the attic. I have kept a journal since, since time began for me. I'm a big believer in solitude and quiet. I think everybody would say this about Jesus Calling, but often it's played pivotal roles at different moments in my life. More often than not, When you open it and read for that day, it's what you needed that day, which is kind of astounding because sometimes you won't pick it up for a long while and then you'll read that day and be like, whoa, you know, there you go. Jesus Calling, April 19th. I love you regardless of how well you are performing. Sometimes you feel uneasy, wondering if you are doing enough to be worthy of my love. No matter how exemplary your behavior, the answer to that question will always be no. Your performance and my love are totally different issues which you need to sort out. I love you with an everlasting love that flows out from eternity without limits or conditions. I've clothed you in my robe of righteousness and this is an eternal transaction. Nothing and no one can reverse it. Therefore, your accomplishment as a Christian has no bearing on my love for you. Even your ability to assess how well you are doing on a given day is flawed. Your limited human perspective and the condition of your body with its mercurial variations distort your evaluations. Bring your performance anxiety to me and receive in its place my unfailing love. Try to stay conscious of my loving presence with you in all that you do and I will direct your steps. Becoming Mrs. Lewis is my first historical and my 14th novel. I have been a C.S. Lewis reader all of my life. And so what I was fascinated with, which is the subtitle to the book, is their improbable love story. And as soon as I started to research that improbable love story, I instead found a fascinating and fiery woman who had so transformed her life that it changed her heart and her family and her work. And then, of course, that transformed the heart and the life and the work and the family of one of our most beloved authors of the 20th century. When I say improbable, what I mean is that here we had this married ex-atheist, ex-communist, former Jewish heritage, married with two kids, woman, living in upstate New York. And then over here, you have also a former atheist, but one of the premier Christian apologists of his day, Oxford Don, living in England. He had never left Ireland or England for all of his life, except for the six months he was in the war in France. And she had never left New York, for all of her life, except for this six months she wrote screenplays in Hollywood, how were these two people to have ever met, much less become friends, much less fall in love? And Mary, forget about it, right? She was born to immigrant parents, Russian, Eastern European immigrant parents. She was born in a part of New York that was called the Jewish ghetto or the Jewish highway. And they eventually worked their way up in the world. Her father was a principal, you know, eventually worked their way up into the Bronx. But she was not a child of privilege by any means. She was privileged because she lived in America, but she went to a public college, tuition free. They didn't have money when she graduated. She had to live with her family. Mostly, if I speak about joy, I think what happened with her is that she had this mystical experience that she would not let go. She wanted to find out what it meant. She wanted to find out an answer or answers to this mystery of what happened to her that, um, in her words, she said that she realized life was too intense to be endured with logic alone or to be endured with flesh and blood. And so she went in search of what this meant, of what was beyond logic, something that would satisfy her heart, her intellect, and her experience. And that's when she first started writing to Lewis. She wrote to him for answers. She wrote to him because she wanted to figure out what this meant. And she felt that he was the smartest person she had ever read. And that his work and his words really hit her in a place that nobody else has had. And he didn't answer all her questions in his book. So she thought... I'm going to reach out to him. And she did. She wrote to him. And that started three years of pen friendship before she ever boarded a ship to sail to England. And I always say, and that's when the story gets really good. There are so many things that struck me that I didn't see coming with their story. The first is her intelligence. I hadn't heard anybody talk about that every time I had heard about her before I started writing this book. I had heard about her as the poor dying wife of C.S. Lewis, the woman who broke his heart. And when I started to understand who she was and her genius and her intelligence and her forthrightness and her fiery spirit, I was taken aback because it had been hidden from me and hidden from us kind of behind C.S. Lewis's shadow. Joy was a child prodigy. She was brilliant. She won the Yale Younger Poets Award. She was incredibly well-read. She was a genius. And that armor stood in the way of finding her true self. And once that happened and she was able to love herself, then I believe she was able to love another person in a way that allowed him to love her in return. And I do believe that It was the first time she ever truly loved, and it's because she first found her true self in God. I was struck hard as a writer by how much she had contributed to his work and how little credit she had been given for that. I was struck by their immense love for each other. Even when it wasn't romantic, their immense and profound support and acceptance of each other just as they were. If you read her poetry, and and you look at her married poetry versus, you know, when she she's quite obviously, but we don't know for sure, talking about Lewis, is that she never is wanting him to be a different man. She wants him to feel differently about her, but she doesn't want to change him. There is this acceptance of, I think one of her poems talks about the gold of him, of who he is. And I think that's very much the way he and his brother, Warney felt about her. And those things struck me very hard. She was brave and she was willing. I always say, you know, we might not all need to pack up our kids and move to England, but we might need to pack up everybody's expectations and everybody's demands and everybody's definitions of us. And that is what she was willing to do. transformation is the heart of the novel. That is why the title is Becoming. They both show us that the quest for truth is worth the complicated and convoluted path of changing our life. And that the quest for love is worth the convoluted and complicated and hard and dissonant path of changing our lives. Because if you put Joy's Journey down on paper, it doesn't Look like everything got better just because she went on a quest for the truth and for love and for God. But if you look at the bigger picture, it was worth it. My favorite quote by Joy is, if we should ever grow brave, what on earth would become of us? And I love that question for the two words that are stuck in that sentence, which are grow and become. If we should ever grow brave, What should become of us? And I love that because it means we're not stagnant. We're not stuck as we are, that there is this chance for change, and that if we grow brave, we can become and grow. You
0: can find Patty's book, Becoming Mrs. Lewis, or listen to more of Joy Davidman's story in the podcast, Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis, at pattycallahanhenry.com. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we speak with musician and American Idol finalist Dave Pittman. At an early age, Dave was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome, a condition that can cause uncontrollable tics or vocal sounds. Dave remembers how he felt when he first heard the news. Back then, you know, first diagnosed, I didn't understand that. I didn't understand why 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 me. But as as I grew in my faith and my understanding and knowledge of God, lord and and scripture i began to understand and realize that we may not understand what god what his plan is for our life but we can trust you know that he's in control and that we're not and i think you know for me it was realizing that my identity is not in tourette syndrome or add or ocd but it's in in jesus christ alone Do you love hearing these stories of faith weekly from people like you whose lives have been changed by a closer walk with God? Then be sure to subscribe to the Jesus Calling Stories of Faith podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review so that we can reach others with these inspirational stories. And you can also see these interviews on video as part of our original web series, with a new interview premiering every other Sunday on Facebook Live.